Section number 10 of Told in a French Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. Told in a French Garden by Mildred Aldrich. Chapter number 8, part 1. The Journalist Story. In a Railway Station. THE TALE OF A DANCER On Friday night, just as we were finishing dinner, we had eaten inside, the divorcee said, It may not be in order to make the remark, but I cannot help saying that it is so strange to think that we are sitting here so quietly in a country at war, suffering for nothing, very little inconvenienced, even by the departure of all the men. The field work seems to be going on just the same, Everyone seems calm. It is almost unexpected and strange to me. I don't see it that way at all, said the journalist. I feel as if I were sitting on a volcano, knowing it was going to erupt, but not knowing at what moment. That I understand, said the divorcee. But that is not exactly what I mean. I meant that, in spite of that feeling, which everyone between here and Paris must have, I see no outward signs of it. They are all about us just the same, remarked the doctor, whether you see them or not. Did it ever happen to you to be walking in some quiet city street near midnight, when all the houses were closed, and only here and there a street lamp gleamed, and here and there a ray of light filtered through the shuttered window of some silent house, and to suddenly remember that inside all these dark walls the tragedies of life were going on, and that, if a sudden wave of magician's wand were to wipe away the walls, how horrified, or how amused, one would be. Well, said the lawyer, I have had that idea many times, but it has come to me more often in some hotel in the mountains of Switzerland. I remember one night sitting on the terrace at Murin, with the young Frau rising in the bridal whiteness above the black sides of the Schwarzmonk, and the moon shining so brightly over the slopes, that I could count any number of isolated little chalets perched on the ledges, and I never had the feeling so strongly of life going on, with all its joys and griefs and crimes, invisible but oppressive. I am afraid, said the doctor, that there is enough of it going on right here if we only knew it. I had an example this afternoon. I was walking through the village when an old woman called to me and asked if I were the doctor from the old Grange. I said I was, and she begged me to come in and see her daughter-in-law. She was very ill, and the local doctor is gone. I found a young, very pretty girl, with a tiny baby, in as bad a shape of hysteria as I ever saw. But that is not the story that I heard by degrees. It seems the father-in-law, a veteran of 1870, now old, and nearly helpless, is of good family, but married in his middle age a woman of the country. They had one son who was sent away to school and became a civil engineer. He married, about two years ago, this pretty girl whom I saw. She is Spanish. He met her somewhere in southern Spain, and it was a desperate love match. The first child was born about six weeks before the war broke out. 
Of course the young husband was in the first class mobilized. The young wife is not French. She doesn't care at all who governs France, so that her man were left her in peace. I imagine the old father suspected this. He had never been happy that his one son married a foreigner. The instant the young wife realized that her man was expected to put love of France before love of her, she began to make every effort to induce him to go out of the country. To make a long story short, the son went to his mother, whom he adored, made a clean breast of the situation, and proposed that, to satisfy his wife, he should start with her for the Spanish frontier, finding means to have her brother meet them there and take her home to her own people. He promised to make no effort to cross the frontier himself, and gave his word of honor to be with his regiment in time. He knew it would not be easy to do, and in case of accident he wished his mother to be able to explain to the old veteran. But the lad had counted without the spirit that is dominant in every Frenchwoman today. The mother listened. She controlled herself. She did not protest. But that night, when the young couple were about to leave the house, carrying the sleeping baby, they found the old man, pistol in hand, with his back against the door. The words were few. The veteran stated that his son could only pass over his dead body, that he have insisted he would shoot him before he would allow him to pass, that neither wife nor child should leave France. It was in vain that the wife, on her knees, pleaded that she was not French, that the war did not concern her, that her husband was dearer to her than honor, and so forth. The old man declared that in marrying his son she became French though she was a disgrace to the name, that her son was a born Frenchman, that she might go and welcome, but she would go without the child. And, of course, that entered the argument. The next morning the baby was christened, but the tale had leaked out. I suppose the Spanish wife had not kept her ideas absolutely to herself, and the son joined his regiment. The Spanish wife is still here, but, needless to say, she is not at all loved by her husband's family, who watch her like lynxes for fear that she will abduct the child, and she has developed as neat a case of hysterical mania of persecution as I ever encountered. So you see that even in this quiet place there are tragedies behind the walls. But I seem to be telling a story out of my turn. "'And it is a forbidden war story at that,' said the youngster. "'So change the air. Whose turn is it?' The journalist puffed out his chest. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he said, as he rose to his feet and struck the traditional attitude of a monologist, "'I regret to inform you that you will be obliged to have a taste of my histrionic powers. I've got to act out part of this story.' couldn't seem to tell it in any other form. Dora! A slender young woman turned at the word, so sharply spoken over her shoulder, and visibly paled. She was strikingly attractive, in her modish tailor frock, and her short tight jacket of Persian lamb, with its high collar of gray fur turned up to her ears. Her singularly fair skin, her red hair, her brown eyes with dark lashes and narrowly penciled eyebrows that were almost black, gave her a remarkable look, and at first sight suggested that nature had not done it all. 
but a closer observation convinced one that the strange combination of such hair and such eyebrows was only one of those freaks by which nature now and then warns the knowing to beware even of marvellous beauty. In this case it stamped a woman as one who, by several signs, might be identified by the initiated as one of those who, without reason or logic, spring now and again from most unpromising soil. She had walked the entire length of the station, from the wide doors on the street side to the swing doors at the opposite end which gave entrance to the tracks. As she passed, no man had failed to turn and look after her, as, with her well-hung skirts just clearing the wet pavement, she stepped daintily over the flagging, and so lightly that neither boots nor skirt were the worse for it. One sees women in Paris who know the art, but it is rare in an American. She must have been long accustomed to attracting masculine eyes, and no wonder, for when she stepped into the place she seemed to give a color to the atmosphere, and everything and everybody went gray and commonplace beside her. It was a terrible night in November. The snow was falling rapidly outside, and the wind blew as it can blow only on the New England coast. It was the sort of night that makes one forced to be out, look forward lovingly to home, and think pityingly of the unfortunate, while those within doors involuntarily thank God for comfort and hug at whatever remnant of happiness living has left them. The railway station was crowded. The storm had come up suddenly at the close of a fair day. It was the hour, too, at which tradespeople, clerks, and laborers were returning home to the suburbs, and at which the steamboat express for New York was being made up, although it was not an encouraging night for the latter trip. The pretty young woman with the red hair had looked through the door near the tracks, and glanced to the right where the New York express should be. The gate was still closed. She was much too early. For a second she hesitated. She glanced about quickly, and the look was not without apprehension. It was evident that she did not see the man who was following her, and who seemed to have been waiting for her near the outer door. He did not speak nor attract her attention in any way. The crowd served him in that. After a moment's hesitation, she turned toward the ladies' waiting-room, and just as she was about to enter, the man behind addressed her and the word was so low that no one near heard it, though by the start she gave it might have been a pistol shot. Dora. She stood perfectly still. The color died out of her face, but only for an instant. She looked alarmed, then perplexed, then she smiled. She was evidently a young woman of resources. The man was a stalwart, handsome fellow of his class though it was almost impossible to guess what that was, save that it was not that which the word labels by exterior signs, gentleman. He might easily have been some sort of mechanic. He was certainly neither a clerk nor the follower of any of the unskilled professions. He was surely country-bred, for there was a largeness in his expression, as well as its bearing, that spoke distinctly of broad vistas and exercise. He was tall and broad-shouldered. He stood well on his feet, 
hampered as little by his six feet of height and fourteen stone weight as he was by the size of his hands. One would have easily backed him to ride well and shoot straight, though he probably never saw the inside of what's called a drawing-room. There was the fire of a mighty emotion in his deep-set eyes. There were signs of a tremendous animal force in his square chin and thick neck, but it was balanced well by his broad brow and wide-set eyes. He seemed at this moment to hold himself in check with rigid stubbornness that answered for his New England origin and Puritan ancestry. Indeed, at the moment he addressed the woman, but for his eyes, he might have seemed as indifferent as any of the stone figures that upheld the iron girders of the roof above him. Still smiling archly, she moved forward into the waiting-room, and passed through the dense crowd that hung about the door, crossed the room to an open space. Without a word, the man followed. The room was dimly lighted, the crowd that surged about them, coming and going, and sometimes pressing close on every side, seemed not to note them, and if they had, they would have been nothing more remarkable than an extremely pretty young woman conversing quietly with a big fellow in a reefer and long boots, a rig he carried well. Dora, he said again, and then paused to steady his voice. Dora wet her red lips with the pointed tip of her tiny tongue. Swallowed nervously once or twice before she spoke, she was now facing him and still smiling. He kept his eyes fixed on her face. He did not respond to the smile. His eyes were tragic. He seemed to be seeking something in her face, as if he feared her mere words would not help him. "'Why, Zeke!' she said at last, when she realized that she could not get beyond her name. "'I thought you had gone home an hour ago. Why didn't you take the 5.15 train?' "'I changed my mind.' To tell you the truth, I heard that you were in town this afternoon. I have been watching you for some time. Well, all I can say is you are foolish. Where's the good for you fretting yourself so? I can take care of myself. I can't get used to you being about in the city streets alone. How absurd! I have been absurd a great many times of late in your eyes. Our ideas don't seem to agree any more. No, Zeke, they don't. Why speak to me in that tone, Dora? Don't, don't do it. He looked over her head, as if to be sure of his hold on himself. He was ghastly white about his smooth-shaven, thick lips. Both hands were thrust deep into his reefer pockets. What's come to you, Zeke? she asked nervously. His was not exactly the face one would see unmoved. He answered her without looking at her. It was evident he did not dare just yet. Nothing much, I reckon. I've been about down all day. I really don't know why myself. I had a queer presentment, as if something were going to happen, as if something terrible were coming to me. Well, I'm sorry. You have no occasion to feel like that, I am sure. All right, if you say so. What train shall we take? He stretched out one hand to take the small bag she carried. She shrank back instinctively and withdrew the bag. He must have felt, rather than seen, 
the movement it was so slight his hand fell to his side still he persisted i'm dead done up dora i'd need my dinner come on then you'd better take the six o'clock train you've just time she said hurriedly all right come on he laid his hand on her shoulder with a gesture that was entreating it was the first time he had touched her a frightened look came into her eyes he did not see it for he was still avoiding her face it was as if he were afraid of reading something there he did not wish to know her red lips had taken on a petulant expression that one of who hated to be stirred up in a childish voice which only thinly veiled an obstinate determination she pouted i'm not going yet the words were said almost under her breath as if she were fearful of their effect on him yet was determined to carry her point the man only sighed deeply as he replied i thought your dancing lessons were over i hoped i was no longer to spend my evenings alone alone looking round at the things that are yours and among which i feel so out of place except when you are there to make me forget god what damnable evenings i've spent there feeling as if you were slipping further and further out of my life as if you were gone and i had only the clothes you had worn and odor about me somewhere to convince me that i had not dreamed you somewhere that faint indistinct evasive scent of you in the room has almost driven me out of my head i wonder if i haven't killed you before now to be sure of you i'm afraid of hell i suppose or i should have the woman did not look at all alarmed indeed there was a light in her amber eyes that spoke of the kind of gratification in stirring this young giant like that this huge fellow could so easily crush her but did not she knew better why than he did but she said nothing with his eyes still fixed on space after a pause he went on i was fool enough to believe that was all over at last that you had danced to your heart's content and that we were to begin the old life the life before that nonsense over again you were like my old dora all day yesterday the dora i loved and courted and married back there in the woods but i might have known it wasn't finished by the ache i had here and he struck himself a blow over the heart with his clenched fist when i awakened this morning and by the weight i've carried here all day and he drew a deep breath like one in pain the woman looked about as if apprehensive that even his passionate undertone might have attracted attention but only a man by the radiator seemed to have noticed and he had the air of being not quite sober enough to understand there was a long pause the woman glanced nervously at the clock the man was again staring over her head it was a quarter to six her precious minutes were flying she must be rid of him end of chapter eight the journalist's story part one recording by kirby bonds